It's so good to be together, um, and I had such a good time watching you guys think you could match Pastor Denise's energy. You think. <laughs> and so, you know, you're just, just a slight provocation. You just cheer and just like, rawr. And so that was a lot of fun. Um, we're continuing a sermon series that we began last week. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go to the website if you haven't. And so you could kind of understand the frame where we're going to be in. We're in this sermon series titled Already But Not Yet. Already But Not Yet. And what we're looking at in this sermon series is this concept that we see Jesus talk about quite a bit. If you look at the Gospels, he mentions this term, this idea, in multiple occasions. And he speaks about it in very distinct ways. And the term that we're unpacking is the term, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And today we're going to do something a bit different. Normally when I start just about every sermon, I begin with a passage. I'll read it. We'll pray. We'll dive in. Today I'm going to pray and then we're going to begin with a question. A question that I've actually heard from so many people over the, over the years. And a diverse group of people. It's not... Um, this question is not confined to people of just uh, certain ethnicities or economic situations in life or uh, political ideologies. It, every single type of person, I've heard them ask this question, wrestle with this question. And in fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have probably thought this, but maybe at times haven't had a sense of permission to let yourself ask this because it feels a little risky, because um, it borderline feels like, am I questioning my faith? And so if you're curious about what that question is, let's pray, and then we're going to get into it. Father, thank you for this opportunity to worship together, to be in your presence as a community, to encounter your love. Holy Spirit, would you fill this place with your presence as we dive into Scripture would you help us to see Jesus, to encounter him? Give us understanding hearts and minds to understand the scriptures. And we thank you for all that you want to do in this time as we look to you with expectation. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So, here's the question. If Jesus died and rose from the dead to transform the world, then why is the world the way it is? It's a legit question. It's a question that I think we have to be honest and wrestle with. And why I said for some of us, we may not feel that full permission to ask it, especially if we grew up around the faith, um, if we're sincerely trying to believe in Jesus, it feels a bit risky to ask it because on some ways it's like, am I denying his reality? Am I questioning what he's done and who he is? Because for us as followers of Jesus, the first part of that question, uh, we attest to that. We believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. That to us is not something that's up for debate. Um, historically speaking, even people that don't follow Jesus would attest that there definitely, undeniably was a man named Jesus, that his disciples said he rose from the dead, that there were eyewitnesses at the tomb, 
Now, all sorts of people from that moment on speculate and deny and resist that, but it's historically undeniable that that happened and that there were people that testified to him rising from the dead. And from that moment till now, we have untold scores of lives that have been utterly transformed by their faith in the resurrected Jesus. You know that the non-belief in God has never transformed a human life the way belief in Jesus has. And so we don't deny that his resurrection has happened, but we also don't deny that the world is still a very broken place. At least we shouldn't. We should wrestle with both. And in fact, this concept, the kingdom of God and the way Jesus spoke about the kingdom the distinct ways he communicated uniquely empowers us to wrestle with this tension because the way Jesus described his kingdom, he described it as already here, but not fully. And that's not our words or our descriptions or we're trying to like nuance. No, that's the way he described it. He described his kingdom as being present, but then he described it as a reality that was yet to fully be here. And we wrestle with this, and that's the goal of this series, is to wrestle with this concept in different ideas and different aspects so that we could fully walk out our faith, not denying that he came, that he lived, that he died, that he rose, that he transformed the world, as well as that the world is still in need of deep healing. And we enter into that tension. Not so long ago, I came across this story. Um, I've shared this at different points. Um, how many... Uh, practice Sabbath. Hopefully in a couple years, way more hands rise as you say, wait, what's that? Um, We're going to unpack that. I want you to stay tuned. In February, we're going to talk about some really amazing stuff um, over the next couple years. I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, Sabbath. I didn't grow up as a Christian practicing one of the Ten Commandments, um, which is not a suggestion. Um, It's a commandment. It came into my life later. Um, And since it's come into my life, it's been one of the greatest gifts. I look forward to Sabbath every week. So much so that I plan it. It's not accidental. It's not, I don't know, I plan it. And here is my sophisticated planning. I live a very riveting life. Watch, Watch out. On my Sabbath, I plan to watch a documentary. That has to happen. I plan on watching something funny. So I source out some funny stuff. I got I to make myself laugh. Um, otherwise, I'll just spend all the time crying. And so make myself laugh. Third, I plan to cook an elaborate meal, something that takes time. And normally, that's just for my wife and I, because my kids will live off of chicken nuggets for the rest of their life. If, you know, <laughs> I've tried, trust me. And just like, nah, give me chicken nuggets. So all right, this is just for mom and me. Um, I came across this documentary, and it talked about this family that I thought was absolutely fascinating. This family is called the Durant family, and they were part of these pioneers. There was a few families that had this audacious vision to actually transform a part of the United States into becoming a world-class, a world-renowned producer of some of the best wines. How many are familiar with Napa Valley? Raise your hand. 
Um, if, you're, if you're not familiar with it, it's a region in this country that's known to produce some of the greatest wines in the world. And it's in California. These families that I'm talking about, particularly the Durant family, they were in the Pacific Northwest. They were in Oregon. Have you ever been to the Pacific Northwest? Anybody? Raise your hands. There's a reason why Starbucks originated from that region of the world. Because it's so gray and gloomy all the time. You need espresso to wake you up. It's just dark. It's not the most bright place. So it's a weird region to pick to grow wine. But these families were successful. And now the Oregon Valley is one of the most world-renowned places for some distinct wines. They make incredible wines. This one family, the Durant family, they were successful. And then they had a really audacious idea. They said, we're going to grow olive trees because we're going to produce olive oil. Now, let me ask you, when you think of olive oil, what region of the world comes to mind? Right? Anywhere else? The Mediterranean as a whole, Italy, Greece. Does the Pacific Northwest scream out at you? Do, you? do you think a gray, gloomy area to produce? These, this family planted thousands of olive trees. They were super excited. And then the winter came. And out of those thousands, only a handful survived. On the surface, you would look and say, this was defeat. This was a dumb idea. Why did we risk it? But they went to those trees that survived and said, out of these trees, what could we do? They began to plant more olive trees. Out of the ones that survived, they had the toughness to survive the winter. And now, arguably, they produce one of the finest olive oils in the world. When we think of Jesus resurrecting, a helpful way to think about it is that Jesus rose from the dead in the most unhospitable environment imaginable. He, he, he broke through death and brokenness, and he's the first begotten of the dead, the scriptures tell us. And from that one life that rose from the dead, from that moment on, anyone who's put their faith in him we come to life. See, Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. He came quite literally to raise spiritually dead people to life. And from that moment, from that one tree that survived the winter, has come a score and multitude of people throughout the ages that when we put our faith in him, his life enters into us. We come alive. The kingdom of God becomes a living reality inside of us. He died in our broken world and in these harsh conditions that were not hospitable, he rose from the dead. He makes us alive who put our faith in him. And because of that, we can attest that the kingdom of God is here, now. If someone asks you, what proof do you have that the kingdom of God, the reality of God, his rule and reign is here, active now, you could point here. Say, I've experienced it. I've come from death to life. 
My faith in him has made me alive in a way that my good works, my efforts, my attempts, the many paths that I try to choose before that moment and since, nothing quite like Jesus has ever done what his resurrection power has done in our lives. The kingdom is here. This life is available and possible that once was not available and possible. So as followers of Jesus, we say that the kingdom of God is here. In the face of brokenness, we declare hope and new life and believe that it's possible, but also when we see death, decay, and brokenness, we don't take that to mean that the kingdom is not here. We take that to remind us that it's not fully here, that there is a kingdom yet to come. Today, we're going to unpack this idea in the, the, the time we have remaining and take a look at this concept of the kingdom of God as we seek to understand what does it mean to be sanctified by Jesus? What does it mean to be sanctified by Jesus? If you've never heard that term before, sanctification as simply as, as possible, it's the process by which Jesus transforms your character so that your character reflects his. Now, that's an important thing to keep in mind, that when you and I said yes to following Jesus, from his heart to ours, his intention has always been very clear. He didn't just invite you to believe in him, he invited you to become like him. So your character will reflect him more and more. One, one way of thinking about it is that over the years, if your soul was a mirror, the more Jesus looks in your soul over time, he wants to see his reflection more clearer. And so over time, you and I become more like him. In fact, this goes back to the very origin of our faith. It, it, when Christianity first appeared in this world, they struggled to actually find an adequate term or name for us because the first followers of Jesus were Jews, but these were not like every other Jew because the first followers of Jesus were Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet there was other Jews that were waiting for the Messiah and were not saying that Jesus was the Messiah. So people struggled and said, we can't call these Christians Jews because they believe something that these other Jews don't. So the term that they struggled to find and they said, no, this nails it, this adequately describes them, was the term Christian. And you know what the name Christian means? It means baby Christ. Imagine that. When they tried to find an adequate term, they said the best way to describe these people would be to describe them as a growing version of Jesus. People who over time grow and become more like him. We see him in them, even if it's in, in an infantile state. We see him in them. That's what we've been invited into, to become more like Jesus. Yet, the process of sanctification is experienced in this very interesting way. The first thing we're going to talk about sanctification, we're going to talk about it in two ways. We're going to talk about it as definitive, and then we're going to talk about it as progressive. Definitive 
and then progressive. What does it mean that sanctification is definitive? It means that it took place in Jesus, that it's complete outside of us, and that it's been done once and for all. For sanctification to be definitive, it means, in many ways, the simplest way to understand it, means it's, it's something that's been done for us on our behalf that you don't add or take away anything from it. It's definitive because it's rooted in Jesus and Jesus alone. Look at what 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, verse 30 says. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. What this verse tells us is that Jesus is our sanctification, in other words, the reason why you and I could become more like Jesus is because Jesus has made that possible. It rests on Jesus, not on you and I. That's one aspect of sanctification that has to be really, really clear. Because otherwise, you and I will seek to be sanctified through our own efforts, through our own hard doing, and you will be met with endless frustration. You won't see the fruit that you long to see. The foundation of sanctification is what Jesus has done, what you can't add to or take away from. I don't know, have, have any of you have ever gone into an Italian-American household in a distinctly Brooklyn neighborhood? All right, all right, let's, let's, let's explore this. If, if it was really a legit Italian-American household in a distinctly Brooklyn neighborhood, how many living rooms did they have? Two, minimum. You say, two? Let me explain this to you. And so, I'll never forget, went to a friend of mine. It was, it was um, I forget what neighborhood in Brooklyn. Gosh, it's right near Sheepshead Bay. Bensonhurst. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bath Avenue, um, former home of John Gotti. So pride, that's, a, that's a thing of pride. Could you imagine? You grow up and it's like, hey, a mobster lives here. This is like... Got your values twisted. Anyway, um, walk into this home, and there's an amazing living room. I'm talking about amazing. Most luxurious sofa you could imagine. The end tables were gorgeous. The carpet was immaculate. It's a really inviting place. And one of us went and sat down on the couch, to which our friend said, no, get up. You don't sit there. It's like, bro, that is a chair. It's been designed to be sat on. What, what do you mean? No, you have to sit in the other living room. And that's when we realize there's another living room. You know, that's like the ultimate flex in life. How many living rooms do you got? I got two living rooms, bro. Like two living rooms. Growing up poor, this was astounding to me. It's like, you got two living rooms. This is amazing. That living room... You only sat in it during the most special occasions. And even then, it was time limited. Don't get too comfortable. You sat there at special occasions, but don't bring food. If you dirty that living room, you will have to find a new family. It, it, that living room was set apart. It was special. It was holy. 
And when we understand definitive sanctification, one way of understanding it is to realize that you and I have been set apart by Jesus. We've been declared as special, as holy, as distinctly his, not for common use, not for everyday use. You are holy, set apart for his design. You're not arbitrary. You're not everyday. You are distinct. You are of immense value because the creator of the universe says, you are mine. You don't belong to anything else. Your allegiance is, is too priceless to be assigned to anything else other than me. You are mine. He declares us his own and he sets us apart. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are not common. You are not just like everyone else you meet. You, it's not an option for you to live just like everybody else. You have a set-apart purpose. You were created by God in Christ Jesus for good works that he preordained for you before the foundation of the world. You're holy. You're sanctified. You're set-apart. And this is something that you couldn't do for you. It had to be done for you. You were declared holy. It wasn't that you declared yourself holy. No, the living God said, you're set apart. You're mine. It's definitive. It's happened outside of you. And the foundation of us becoming Christ-like is that, this sense of sanctification. But there's another aspect of it, and that's progressive. Progressive sanctification. That doesn't just connect you to what happened outside of you on behalf of you in Jesus. Actually, it, that is something you experience inside. You progressively, over time, become more and more like Jesus. And that is in response or in relationship to how you obey, how you follow, how you allow the empowering of the Holy Spirit to lead you toward obedience. So it's, it's an interesting tension where you can be declared set apart, yet choose not to progressively become more like Jesus. You and I could choose to stay stuck. You and I could choose to regress. And yet over us is this declared identity. You're set apart, you're sanctified, yet inwardly we could be still living as we did in the past. But God's desire is not that. His desire is for you to recognize you are declared holy. It's definitive. It's happened on your behalf once and for all. You can't add to that, change that. And over time, you become, you progressively become more like Jesus. Every single day, you obey his leading and receive his empowering. God's desire is that when he checks in with us next year, that we would be more like Jesus. He declared us sanctified, but he wants us to progressively become more and more set apart, more and more like him. Perhaps some of us, the source of struggle lies in one 
aspect of that or the other. Perhaps some of us struggle to believe that God would ever declare us as set apart. How would God ever see me and say, there's a special purpose for this person? Do you know what I've done? Do you know what's been done to me? You know what I've seen, experienced? That must be for somebody else. I'm too broken to be set apart. I'm too, I'm too whatever to actually believe that. Yet, from God's lips to your heart, he doesn't change his tune. If you ask him, God, how do you see me? He says, I see you set apart. You're mine. You have a purpose that's holy. You're uncommon. Perhaps we struggle to believe that. Or perhaps our struggle lies in the fact that we believe that, yet in our daily experience, we resist God's empowering to become more like that. Let me give you an example. You could believe that God calls you and declares you holy, and yet when you interact with somebody that requires you to be extra gracious, patient, forgiving again, at that moment you could choose to say, I'm going to receive your empowerment, Jesus, to be who you're calling me to be here, or they're going to recognize who I am and where I come from. They're going to remember my name. We have a choice in those moments. You ever felt that moment? It's like this moment could go either way. From here, I will either walk away and say, I was empowered by Jesus to love this person, and I did. Or I'm facing five to ten, and Rikers is my destiny. Like, you ever, you ever been in those moments? I'm, I'm alone. There's that crossroad. It's like, oh. Jesus wants us to progressively become more like him. And you... You and I are constantly put in situations where unless we lean on him, our default is to be who we've always been rather than who he's declared us to be. How does this fit within the framework of the kingdom of God? I, I want you to just take down some notes. I'm going to give you a bunch of verses right now. I wish I had time to read all of them and to explain them but I'm going to give them to you so you can write them down and you could read them on your own this week because I, I think you'll see an amazing theme that will emerge. And then we're going to spend time in one verse. First verse is Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. I want you to write that down. The next verse is Romans 8, verse 9 to 11. Write that down, please. Next verse, Romans chapter 7, verse 6. Next verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. When you spend time with these verses over this week, I want you to notice this theme that comes up. In these verses, you will see where we're described as having this life that Jesus has made possible, but also will be called to lay down, to crucify, to let go of 
the death that we came from, the brokenness. You're going to see this tension, but in Colossians chapter 3, it really becomes clear. This is the verse we're going to read and spend some time in. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 10, it says this, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now hear this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What Paul is describing in those verses is what we're talking about when we think of the kingdom of God already being here, but not yet fully. Because what he describes is that we've been raised with Jesus. And he says, because you've been raised, you should seek those things that are above. He's saying, you have this new life that's inside of you. But then he says, because of that, you have to put to death these things that are in you. In other words, he's saying, you are alive, but not yet fully. And your daily experience as his followers is such that on a daily basis, we experience the life of Jesus, but we're also called to put to death the old man, the old way. This is a daily dynamic, a daily tension. And why I think it's important to name it is because for some of us, when we experience the stuff that we have to lay down and put aside, it can be so discouraging that it makes this question, have I really even met Jesus? Has he really changed me? Has he really made me alive? Because if I was alive by him, should I still be struggling with these things? Should I still have to face these things? What we're being told is yes. There will be no day in your following of Jesus where you will not be both fully alive yet not fully. Where he will make you alive, he's made you alive, and yet you, will, you and I will have to wrestle with the various things And this is not an exhaustive list, but if you look at the things that Colossians 3 says, these are things that come up for us in all sorts of ways. Where we will have to put to death, lay down, put aside the old while we embrace the newness of life that we find in Jesus. Again, For some of us, our struggle is embracing the new life. Or for some of us, the struggle is letting go of the old one. The reality is, you and I will never be fully empowered to let go of the old life until we fully 
and continuously embrace the new life that we've been given by Jesus. Grabbing hold of it again and again and again. Waking up every day and realizing, no matter what the world tells me, I'm set apart. I'm holy. I've been called by God. And because I've been declared sanctified, I can progressively grow in sanctification. I can have hope to become more like Jesus tomorrow because Jesus has declared me sanctified from his empty tomb. So my hope in becoming more like him is not, I'm going to try harder. My hope in becoming more like him is that he died and rose. And that empowers me. This sounds like tough work, doesn't it? Putting death, putting to death the old and laying aside. It sounds like every day I got to do that. Like I don't get any day off. There's not one day where it's just like, you know, my, my old man is not going to say, you know, you've worked really hard and I'm going to go to the beach. You do your thing. I'll see you Monday. No, that doesn't happen every single day. You know, in my own experience, I have left here like soaring, God doing all this stuff. And I get in my car and it just takes one New Yorker to cut me off. And all of a sudden, oh, the old man's still there. You, you, we wrestle with it. There, there won't be a day where you won't wrestle with this. So where do you find the energy, the joy, the strength to do it? We find it. In the beauty of the love of God. I, I came across this story. It was really compelling. I, for me these days, since Brielle was born, uh, she'll be three in March. It's crazy. And for those of you who don't know, that's our, our, our youngest child of four. She was born with Down syndrome. So it's been a very distinct journey from our other three. And so for me, some of the most heroic people now, for me, are people with disabilities. People that have to manage through life and grow despite some challenges that you and I probably don't think about at all. And their, their unique experiences. I, I came across a story that was so amazing. It was this couple. Been married for a couple of years. And this man actually has a really like, difficult degenerative disease where it's gotten to the point where they've stabilized it, but it's done so much wreckage to his body that he's, he's very sharp mentally, he can communicate, you can hear him and understand him. Somehow, this, this was amazes, he started a business and he actually provides for himself and his wife, and like a very successful business. It's just all the things that you wouldn't think someone in, in his situation would emerge from, it's so inspiring. But then he gets married and the experience of the wife is what gripped me. Every single day, she has to bring him to bed, carry him. After she helps him clean his teeth, shower, every single day when they wake up, she has to bring him to his wheelchair. Imagine like vacations, travel, things that we normally just take for granted. For them, it's another level, in particular for her. What she has to deal with is exceptional. It's love that it's hard to imagine. If you've ever had to take care of someone who was sick 
You know you love them, but it doesn't diminish the fact that it's difficult work to tend to them and care for them. And that's just for a momentary, this is for the rest of their life. And they asked this woman, how do you do it? How do you get through it? And when you look at her eyes, the question didn't really resonate. She was like, I don't understand. She's like, this is difficult. This is challenging. And yet you seem joyous. And her response was so simple. She said, I love him. I love him. So because I love him, what looks difficult to the outsider is just a regular day for us. When I heard that, I thought about our experience of laying down, of putting to death, of not walking in on a daily basis, seeing the life of God in you, but also dealing with the flesh and temptation and sin. Man, it's hard work to lay that down, to resist that. And it will be daunting unless you find a love, a joy, a beauty that's greater, that surpasses any kind of difficulty you may experience in the day-to-day of that. And for us, the beauty, the joy, the delight that empowers us on a daily basis to forgive, to be patient, to be gracious, to go the extra mile, to have compassion, to have empathy, to deny our impulses and our desires. The thing that fuels us to keep doing that, the good news is it's not your willpower or mine or our strong efforts. It's being captivated again and again and again by the beauty of God's redeeming love. When that grips you and keeps gripping you and keeps melting you and keeps tethering you to him, in that alone do we find the strength that we need to forgive, to be gracious, to ask for forgiveness, to walk in holiness. And so today as we wrestle with this, what does it mean for the kingdom to be already here but not yet with respect to our sanctification? I hope that you and I find encouragement in the fact that the life of God truly is at work in you. If you put your faith in Jesus, that also there's death that has to be confronted, brokenness, the old ways that have to be put down, and that's happening at the same time. And one doesn't deny the other, but one empowers us to live out laying down. It's the life of God, the beauty of Jesus. And I invite us to stand at this time. And as we stand, I want to invite us to worship, to respond to God. Right where you're at, if you feel comfortable, can I invite you just to raise your hands in the presence of God. Wherever you find yourself, whether you're struggling to believe that you're declared holy or you're struggling to surrender to God's invitation for you to walk in it. Wherever you're at, let's respond to God. As we worship in these next few moments, if you would like prayer, all you have to do is slip out of your seat and go to the back. My right to your left, the prayer team is there. They would love to pray with you regarding any of the words that came up, anything you might be journeying through. They would love to pray with you. All you have to do is slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer in these next few moments. Let's respond to God. Let's worship him.
Jesus, you're here. Speak to us. Envelop us in your grace. Meet us. Let's worship.